You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And just as a warning, these films might be in theaters now, or they may be from 10, 20, 30 years ago. But regardless, there's a strong possibility that I will be revealing spoilers. I might give away the plot or the ending in this review, so just be warned. Elvis, which came out in 2022 and was directed by Boz Lerman. It stars Austin Butler, Tom Hanks, Richard Roxburgh, Helen Thompson, Olivia DeJong, Cody Smith-McPhee, Luke Bracey, and Kelvin Harrison Jr. The genre would be rock biopic. A lot of people saying a lot of things. You don't so much as wiggle a finger. But in the end, you gotta listen to yourself. In that moment, Elvis the God was born. It's very hard to live up to an image. If you don't do the business, the business will do you. If you dream it, you'll do it. I've never met anyone like you. I hope not. Elvis, in cinemas June 24. Book tickets now. Now, if you go by the logic of Mia Wallace's pre-date interview to Vince Vega during that deleted scene from Pulp Fiction... There's only two kinds of people in the world. Beatles people and Elvis people. Now, Beatles people can like Elvis, and Elvis people can like Beatles, but nobody likes them both equally. You have to choose as to whether you're a Beatles person or an Elvis person. Me personally, I have always been a Beatles man. And going back to when I first saw his modernized rendition of Romeo and Juliet in theaters in 1996, surrounded in an audience of teenagers who often laughed nervously throughout the movie, I mean, was that boys' choir singing When Doves Cry? Supposed to be funny? Maybe I'm just like my She's we'll never know. Along with having Doug Strictly Ballroom, his first film, I became a Boz Lerman fan. Yet I 100% understand how they can utterly be grating to others. Lerman is not a subtle filmmaker. He has a style and even a sort of formula, which can often go to extremes, from ramped-up, jittery insanity in the first act to full-on melodrama in the third act. There's just no middle ground with his movies. Just like that Elvis vs. Beatle theory posed by Mia Wallace. I was extremely skeptical going into this movie as a result. If you're not a big Elvis fan, could you possibly enjoy a 160-minute biopic about him, from one of our most extreme mainstream directors? Well, the answer for me, now having seen this film, is definitively yes, which, on the other hand, might not make this film quite as appealing for Elvis diehards. This film is not Bohemian Rhapsody, thank God, which was little more than a diverting jukebox concert movie trotting out the hits in succession for queen heads just dying to hear Killer Queen in all of its glory in Dolby Atmos. Nope. Boz Lerman actually gives us very few Elvis hits in their entirety. Now, don't get me wrong. This film is wall-to-wall music, and most of it quite good. But throughout the movie, we hear snippets or chunks or remixes or even instrumental versions of Elvis hits incorporated into the score. Boz Lerman takes a lot of liberties with the needle drops and with anachronistic versions, too, no less. Though that's always been one of his trademarks, from playing Jay-Z during The Great Gatsby 
towards having a marching crowd just bust out into Smells Like Teen Spirit during Moulin Rouge. So if you're a fan, an avid fan of the purest forms of the Elvis catalog, you might be somewhat disappointed. But if Suspicious Minds happens to be your personal favorite Elvis song, which for me it is, and you're okay with the general flavor of the best of his catalog, and you're up for a heightened spectacular spectacular, to quote his Moulin Rouge movie, spectacular, spectacular, rendition of Elvis's life story, then this just might be the biopic for you. We hear snippets of Suspicious Minds throughout, culminating in a later bravura sequence of Elvis performing it, which might be the critical scene of this movie. And you likely won't hear these three particular movies mentioned in the same sentence again, but strangely enough, I feel like Rocketman, Elvis, and Amadeus all belong in the same subcategory of musician biopics. They each take their subject in a skewed directions and just run with it. For this incarnation of Elvis Presley's life story, Boz Lerman uses his maximalist style to basically focus on the overnight explosion of Elvis, played by Austin Butler, with the fallout to come, the influences for his music, and his relationship with the conniving Colonel Tom Parker, played by Tom Hanks, in a somewhat unrecognizable giant Baron Harkonnen-like fat suit with a bizarre hybrid Southern-slash-Dutch accent, no less. In that moment, I watched that skinny boy transform into a superhero. And it's Hanks who actually narrates the story, which is generally told in broad strokes as we see literal years and key events fly by despite the length of this epic. And it's clear from the get-go that Hanks' overall performance and appearance in this movie is a, well, it's a choice for sure. And apparently for many viewers and critics of this movie, it's a choice that for most is pure distraction. Hanks has been mostly pilloried for what many consider to be a mustache-twirling caricature of a villain who detracts from the nuances of Elvis's biography. But for me personally, I think it actually works quite well for the type of story that Lerman is trying to tell about such an iconic pop culture figure and the flamboyant lifestyle that he would live. And we have seen over-the-top villains like these in previous Boz Lerman films, from John Leguizamo's Tybalt in Romeo and Juliet, to Richard Roxborough's literal mustache-twirling Count in Moulin Rouge. From what little I know about Presley's life, including real-life footage, he did live quite the flamboyant life, loaded with excess. He had the massive Graceland compound built initially for just his mother, also surrounding himself with raucous sycophants who were known as the Memphis Mafia. And Colonel Parker was a key driver for how rapidly his fame would be commodified via merchandising, Christmas specials, etc. No doubt there were several others involved, but you don't have to be an Elvis expert to surmise that what transpired on screen and behind the scenes was kind of an escalation between these two, between Elvis and Colonel Parker. And me personally, sorry, but I've just always been a sucker for evil Hanks, evil Tom Hanks. As an actor, I have just always preferred his performances, which were much more comic and unhinged. Whereas disappointingly, as Tom Hanks became a more serious actor, he has more often defaulted to the inoffensive nice guy blandness of, say, a Forrest Gump. Not going to lie, I don't think his accent always lands in this movie, and it also constrains at times one of Hanks's key strengths as an actor, those impressive loud pipes, which he actually used quite effectively in previous review, A League of Their Own. 
Check that out. Why Lou stopped? Lou quit. Who's Lou? But just watching him in these ridiculous prosthetics, often just looming over Elvis menacingly, just his mere presence as Colonel Tom Parker has the desired effect that it needs to. And of course, none of this works without the fearless, transformative performance at its core by Austin Butler, who had not done much before landing the role of Elvis, but is now having a potential breakout star moment, receiving near-unanimous praise and Oscar talk for this movie, which is all deserved. I'm going to show you what the real Elvis is like tonight! You're looking for trouble? You came to the right place. You're looking for trouble? Look right in my face. I was born standing up and talking back. My daddy was a green Butler inhabits the figure Elvis was during all of the critical stages of his life in a manner that does not come off as mere impersonation. And after decades of Elvis impersonators and other biopics about this man, that had to be such an obvious trap for Butler to fall into as an actor. But he navigates this all effectively by showing us the charisma, the soulfulness, and the crippling insecurity that Elvis would often feel, often feeling the need to constantly prove himself again and again, having both come from embarrassingly meager means and standing on the shoulders of several talented black musicians whose music he would appropriate for his own success. Now, does this film overstay its welcome? Yes, undoubtedly. You could probably cut around 20 minutes, and would I have preferred more depth given to other key figures in Elvis's life? You bet. Including his wife Priscilla, who is nicely played with minimal screen time by Olivia Dejange. But overall, I enjoyed Elvis, the movie, quite a bit, as it very effectively blends the sensibilities of a talented filmmaker, who's clearly an acquired taste for many others, with the broadly drawn story of a musical icon whom I can appreciate but I have only had a marginal interest in. Now, if Lerman had devoted his talents towards a similar interpretation of the story of the Beatles, well, who knows? All bets are off. And that brings us to the categories. The first category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. Now, regarding that unique mixture of music used by Lerman that I referred to earlier, one clever thing that he does is often showing us older, original versions of these songs being performed by black artists, while also providing us with some modernized, hip-hop-influenced versions on the soundtrack. My personal favorite being the Doja Cat's single, Vegas, performed over one fun Beale Street musical sequence early on. This modern hip-hop song includes the chorus of Elvis' Hound Dog, which was one of his biggest early hits. We witness the original blues performance of Hound Dog, in a club by LMA Big Mama Thornton, who was a huge influence on Elvis, then into Elvis himself performing his hit version of Hound Dog, before eventually drifting into Doja Cat's hip-hop remix. You ain't nothing but a dog, play a frog, play a Now, as to whether in-your-face musical choices like these take you out of the movie, well, mileage may vary, but the sequence is signature Boz Lerman. Few filmmakers have been as adept at utilizing various genres of music like this, and I personally think it works really well in the context of this story. 
That brings me to the next category, which would be wasted talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Elvis's cultural appropriation of black music was always going to be the big elephant in the room for any modern-day biopic of the singer. And I'll give Boslerman this. He at least attempts to acknowledge several black artists who Presley was highly influenced by and or, quote, borrowed music from to claim as his own. Among the most notable ones was the late great blues legend B.B. King, who was played by one of our most talented up-and-coming actors under the age of 30, Kelvin Harrison Jr., He's only 27, and Harrison has already truly racked up quite the filmography over the past decade, including multiple Oscar winners and nominees, The Trial of the Chicago 7, Mudbound, and 12 Years a Slave. And he has had several strong performances in smaller indie dramas like It Comes at Night or Waves. He also does a nice job here, playing the real-life guitar legend King, with a few fun sequences showing him just either playing and or hanging out with Elvis. The chemistry with him and Butler is quite strong. You believe that they are really good friends. That said, I wanted more of him. We hardly see Harrison or this character after pretty much the first hour of the film. And I would have at least appreciated maybe one or maybe two more scenes of Elvis circling back with him later in his career in the 70s. Because Harrison himself really has presence. I could see a whole movie devoted to someone being played by him, such as B.B. King. Maybe a spinoff? Regardless, I will certainly be on the lookout for anything that Kelvin Harrison Jr. does in the future, even if he was not used enough here. The next category is the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. Now, regarding that escalation that I referred to earlier between Elvis and Colonel Tom, we especially see this play out during a key late sequence, which I also mentioned previously, taking place during Elvis's first of many Las Vegas stage shows at the International Hotel and Casino. This is now the older, sweatier, pill-addicted Elvis, and he's performing Suspicious Minds while Parker looks on at a table with the local casino bosses, whom Parker also owes an absorbent amount of money to, resulting from his gambling debts. Lerman's camera cuts back and forth between the two as we witness Parker quietly negotiating a deal written on napkins, with the big boss committing to an unlimited residency for Elvis to perform year-round at this venue only. Unbeknownst to Elvis, of course. In exchange for complete forgiveness of Colonel Parker's debts and also to receive unlimited credit. By this point in the story, it has been made very clear by Elvis that this is the furthest thing from what he'd be looking to do, as his plans are finally to embark on a world tour, allowing him to finally be given a chance to, quote, see the world. So what Colonel Tom Parker does is clearly presented as a Judas-like betrayal. But by this time in his life on and off stage, Elvis was just not going quietly. Hence this escalation. And we watch on stage as Elvis is going into a literal fit, repeating the chorus of the song Suspicious Minds again and again. Whether he's aware of how Parker is plotting to exploit him sitting out there in the audience, Elvis is still lashing out in anger and frustration as only he can. On stage. Caught in a trip. I can't walk out. Because I love too much me. Don't you know? Too much. 
Now, whether this all played out this particular way in real life, that's besides the point. This is an adept cinematic demonstration of the contrast between a performer who just did not know when to quit and his ruthless handler-slash-manager who just could not resist the temptation to keep pushing him for selfish reasons. Just a great sequence. And now the final category, the MVP, the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Could it be Boz? Well, he does have help, as this film is just pure spectacle from top to bottom. Frenetic, in a good way, editing from Matt Vila and Jonathan Redmond, Gorgeous, eye-popping cinematography taking us through the 50s, 60s, and 70s by Mandy Walker. And of course, indelible contributions with regards to costume and production design from Lerman's longtime collaborator and wife, Catherine Martin. I mean, considering that this is a story of Elvis, the costuming just does not disappoint. Just love those sequins. At the end of the day, this film rests within Boz's world, and the rest of us are just visiting. For successfully bringing his unique talents to the musical biopic subgenre, Baz Luhrmann is the MVP. I want to make a movie that cross generations will come in that's not a franchise and sit in a dark room with strangers and commune in a vast American story, a vast American opera. And that's what I hope this will be. And that's what I'm fighting for. My rating for Elvis would be four stars out of five. Still a Boz fan after all these years, and I'm honestly at a loss as to how to rank his filmography. Each of his films could just be overwhelming watches, which you just have to catch at the right time and in the right mood. That said, I would still consider Moulin Rouge to still be his best overall film. If you're looking to watch Elvis, it is currently playing in theaters. See it on the biggest screen possible. And that ends another spectacular, spectacular review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.